Welcome to the Profit-Led Podcast, where we discover proven growth strategies for bootstrapped entrepreneurs from the people who have done it before to help you accelerate your business. The Profit-Led Podcast is brought to you by eWebinar, the leading automated webinar platform, which could save you from doing the same webinar over and over again, from sales demos to onboarding to training. eWebinar turns any video into an interactive webinar that you can set on a recurring schedule or make available on demand which means you can do hundreds of webinars without ever needing to actually be there to host them live. This podcast is a forum for the unsung heroes of SaaS, the founders and others behind bootstrapped startups who are creative and resourceful enough to forge a pathway to success. Here is where they get to share everything they learned along the way, so you can benefit from their experience and find success in your own ventures too. Welcome to Profit-Led the podcast for bootstrap entrepreneurs looking to make it happen. My name is Melissa Kwan. I'm the co-founder and CEO of eWebinar and your host. With me today is Todd Parmley, eWebinar's COO and the first person I called when I decided to start this company. Hey, Todd, how's it going? I'm good. I'm good. I'm excited to be on the podcast. It's been a whole season and I'm here. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks for joining me today on our first ever podcast recording together. In the last episode, which was the introduction to the season, season two, I explained why we're dedicating this season to our journey to a million at eWebinar. To recap for those who may not have heard it yet, in the last season, I brought in guests like myself, bootstrap founders and strategists to share their stories. Each episode from season one is filled with actionable insights that help you grow your business from people who live to tell about it. But here's the thing. If you've been following me on LinkedIn, you know that a few times a week for over a year, I've been posting about my experiences bootstrapping three companies. Out of all my posts over that time, I noticed that the stories that get the most engagement are the ones that gave people a window into the reality of what it's like to build a startup with very few resources. Overwhelmingly, the feedback I've gotten from people on these posts has been about how relatable and authentic it is to hear from a non-unicorn founder. And that got me thinking. There really isn't much original content that dives into what a day in the life is like of an average non-venture-backed founder. And that's why I've decided to switch things up. So this season, rather than focus on the experience of others, I want to give our listeners a window into what it was actually like for us to bootstrap a startup from zero to a million ARR. I invited Todd to be my co-host on every episode because like I said before, he was there from day one, even before my CTO co-founder who joined me a year into this venture. I think together, Todd and I will be able to offer you two very unique and interesting perspectives from the founder, which is pretty common, and from the first hire, which is rare. So Todd, before we dive into today's topic, why don't you share a bit about yourself so our audience can get to know you better? Yeah, sure. Where to begin? I think I've had a kind of an unusual career path, especially ending up in software. I originally went to acting school at ACT in San Francisco and got my MFA. And then shortly after that, when I finished grad school, all my friends were moving to LA, New York, and I didn't want to, I wasn't ready. So I moved to Alaska and I ran a theater company there. I directed a show that catered to the cruise lines. It was awesome and a beautiful place to live. And then I sort of dragged my feet. I think I did that for like two years. And then finally, I was like, I'm going to go to New York. I'm going to pursue acting. And I got here and I was pretty miserable. Like right out of the gate, I hated the process of auditioning. I still loved what I had learned and I didn't regret anything, but I hated auditioning. And so meanwhile, I needed a paycheck. So my boyfriend and I at the time, we had a housewarming party. And this friend of a friend of a friend came named Matthew Haynes. And 
I think probably a month after that party, I was already exhausting my savings. And I ran into Matthew out front of our building. And I was like, hey, didn't you come to our party? He was cleaning out the basement of this building across the street. And he said, I just bought this building. I need help clearing out the basement. I was like, whatever. Like, I need money. So I helped him clear out the basement. At the end of that, he was like, hey, I have this new website that's getting a little traction. Can you come help me do data entry? I was like, whatever. I just needed a paycheck. And that became Property Shark, which if you live in New York and you work in real estate of any kind, you know Property Shark. It became the number one real estate website in the city in a very short period of time by word of mouth because it was doing something that nobody had done before. So I was all of a sudden in a startup and I had no idea at the time that that's what was going on. And Matthew would disappear to go to Romania where the engineers were. And I would be left alone to answer the phone and do customer support. And I knew nothing about real estate or real estate data. So do you remember Vonage? Like I would have a Vonage line and people would call in and ask questions and I would tell them to hold, which I didn't even have a hold button. I would just put the phone on the desk and then I would Google what they were saying because I had no idea what the words they were using meant. So people talk about fake it till you make it. Like I really did that for real. I mean, I was answering customer support questions from Google. And then if I didn't know how to answer a question, I would just tell them that I would get back to them later. And I was with Property Shark for a while and that parlayed into a career in real estate tech in New York that happened sort of organically. I went and became a trainer at a residential firm here that was the number one firm that had their own kind of like development team. So I would sit with agents and teach them how to use the software that was being built. And then I just started inserting myself into the development process. I would like say, you know, agents don't like this. This workflow makes no sense. Like they really wish it could do this instead. And they invited me to come up and start working with the developers directly. And I think I was probably doing that for maybe five or six years before I realized that I was a product manager. Like I remember I was sitting at my desk and I was like, there's got to be a name for this, what I'm doing. And then that's when I went to like a general assembly. I took their kind of product management bootcamp, kind of formalized my skills, um, which was great because I was already doing so many of the things that a product manager would do, but I just didn't know what they were or how to do it more efficiently. And that's sort of how it happened. And that's actually how we met as at Corcoran at the time. And we were one of your customers at Spacey at your last company. And how many years were you there at Corcoran? I was at Corcoran for 10 years. Yeah, I, I was there at 10 years. And then I left to go to a couple of startups that did not work out, unfortunately. But it led me here. So that was good. Yeah. Do you remember how many years ago you had quit Corcoran? I guess that was your last real corporate gig, right? Sort of, yeah. Because if you remember, so I came to work. I was in between because I was under a non-compete when you contacted me. And so I couldn't work. So when you first came to me, I was like, okay, I like the idea and everything, right? But I... I just needed, it was a perfect time. And then I went to Compass at the end of that six-month non-compete and was sort of there a little bit before I came over here completely, 100%. When did you work on those startups? Was it after Corcoran or was it after Compass? It was after Corcoran. I went to two startups back-to-back that did not work out. Yeah, they were they were not good experiences, you know, for various reasons. We'll definitely dig into that. Yeah. <laughs> I guess just for context for our listeners, like I had three startups. Spacio was my second startup, which was an open house check-in app in the real estate industry. I moved to New York to hustle clients and brokerages. <laughs> and eventually I got to Corcoran through a referral. And then Todd, I guess was like the second or third person I had met. I forgot if I was just selling it still or if we were implementing it, but 
you definitely championed us getting into that company. And that was a huge deal. Like for people who don't know anything about real estate, Corcoran, I don't think is like the number one firm, but it's definitely the most prestigious firm. Like the one that everybody wants to get into. Like it's like Barbara Corcoran's company, which she's had sold. Yeah. I mean, depending on how you measure it, they're still number one in just sales, primarily because of the new development they do. But they're a big deal here. They're a luxury firm that's very, very well respected. Yeah. So as the real, I guess, first episode of this series, I want to kind of focus back on our topic here. I thought we could go back to the very beginning where I was ideating and conceptualizing the business, but also like had a bunch of different ideas, I guess, in, in my bag. Where do you think I should start? Well, I think that I would probably, you know, the question I would have is probably the one that others have is how did you decide on eWebinar as the idea? I actually don't even know if it was the only idea, how many ideas you were entertaining. I know at the time you'd sold Spacio and we hadn't even been in contact yet and you were ready for the next thing. So, you know, that's the question I would have is why did you decide to move so quickly? What were you considering doing and how did you decide on webinar. Yeah. I mean, I guess you're not really an entrepreneur unless you have like 20 different ideas at any given time with four domains each. Right? <laughs> like once in a while I have to go into GoDaddy and like prune those domains, like prune those auto renews. <laughs> but I ran Spacio for four and a half years before it was acquired. And I was never truly happy with that business. And, and I've written about this on LinkedIn as well. It was a very niche product in a niche market that had its limitations. And I guess I'll share the, the relevant LinkedIn post in the show notes of this episode as well, just for context. But I, you know, it, it was a fine business. It was really hard to get off the ground. I suffered a lot because training real estate agents was so, so difficult, as you know. And also to give context, like real estate agents are known as laggards in technology. And also they just don't have time for you, right? Like they're going everywhere else in the day to get buyers and sellers and show houses and do open houses. They're not going to sit through a training. But at the same time, you're selling a brokerage product that needs to be used. Otherwise people cancel or they ask you to lower the price, right? So that was kind of my life for, for many years. And my first company was also in real estate software, selling software to like real estate development companies, just kind of a different thing. So... I guess after I sold Spacio and I didn't sell it for retirement level money, I did sell it for life-changing money at the time, but I wanted to start something right away because I didn't want to work forever. And I was seeing how quickly consumer expectations were changing, like rising, right? How many seconds do we give a piece of software in an app before we say that it sucks and we have to delete it? Right? What do you mean by that? Like in what way? Like you download an app on your phone and if it doesn't do all the things that you want it to, you, you delete it, right? I think business software, people are a bit more patient because they, they need to use it for a certain, you know, maybe to achieve a business function, but not by much, right? Like people come into your software and it needs to do all these things. It's to be expected that it's good. And if it's bad, they bounce, right? So I was seeing this, I guess, like this rise in consumer expectations. And I felt the urgency to get something else out there because I didn't want to wait another two years after my contract was up with, with Homespotter, my acquirer, to start something else, right? Because in two years, like who knows, right? Who knows how much higher those expectations were going to be. And doing the same live demo, live training, live onboarding over and over was my life for all of Spacio because we were bootstrapped. I was everything except for code. I was marketing, sales, customer success, you name it. So I was the person responsible for revenue and also adoption. So I had always dreamt of this 
incredible, perfect product that would take a video and turn it into a webinar that I could run 24-7 because agents are not working on evenings and weekends. So I want to be able to offer those trainings to them during those times. I'm not going to actually do it. So I would still offer them during the day, but then the attendance was really low. So I had just thought that, you know, this product has to exist. And I'm not kidding. Like every quarter for probably three years that I was training on Spacio, I would check Google to see if there was something out there that could solve this problem. And there were definitely automated webinar, evergreen webinar software, whatever you want to call it out there, but they were just not built to the extent that I wanted it to be built. They were really designed to, I guess, trick people into buying a product and thinking this webinar is live when it's not, but I don't want to trick people. I want to deliver an amazing experience that gives people content when they want it and something that I could hop in and respond live if I want to and respond by email if I'm not there, kind of like an intercom chat. So I basically just thought about this over and over. And after Spacio was acquired, I really got some time to think about, number one, why was I miserable for the last few years of my company, even though we were making money and we were profitable and I was finally paying myself, why was I never satisfied? And why was I never content? And why did I always wake up with this like angst, right? And I realized when I had some time to not do that anymore, not chase sales, because now it was under someone else's umbrella, that I never really asked myself what it is that makes me happy, right? I was doing this product based on my experience in real estate. So I used to sell real estate. I did it for three years on the business side. And then I had my first company in real estate tech as well. So naturally, the first company became the second company. And I just didn't really think I could do anything else outside of real estate. But frankly, I didn't love my customers. I didn't like supporting agents. I didn't really like making agents' lives marginally better. It just wasn't serving anything that I really cared about. It wasn't serving this greater purpose. And so I realized that, and, and I think a lot of those things are, are learned. Like there's no way I could have known this in my 20s, which is when I started my first company. But through the 10 years of having two startups, I came to understand what I hated doing in a business and what I loved doing in a business. So to give you an example, it could be real estate software is sold in person. You have to go to trade shows and conferences and set up booths and partner with franchises. And then part of the contract is that you attend two conferences a year and you have to sit at a booth. So first quarter of every year, I'm on a plane every week. And I hated that, right? And because it was such a high touch, high relationship business, I was always dealing customers one-on-one, doing live demos, getting texts in the middle of the night because someone had referred me to someone, they wanted me to talk to them. So I had learned that I really did not like creating a business or running a business that infringed on my lifestyle. Because at the time I was also digital nomading. So not only was I servicing these customers and doing these onboardings and trainings all the time, I was doing them on opposite time zones of everybody else, right? Most of our customers are, are in the US, some in Canada, but mostly in the US. So what I did was I made a list of non-negotiables. Before I even chose a business idea, I made a list of non-negotiables, the things that I cannot live without in my next business. And these were things that made me happy, right? So, so to give an example, it's, I have to have a product that can be sold hundred percent through the internet. So no in-person sales. I have to be completely remote with a remote team, no employees, all contractors. Cause I also realized I'm actually really bad at people management, but I really love creating and making sales and, and inventing something and getting it out to market. 
but I just have never been good with confrontations and emotions and managing teams. Like I had a co-founder that actually loved doing that, but I wasn't going to start this business with him anymore. So I wrote a list of 10 non-negotiables that I must have in my next business. And then through that process, I eliminated probably 95% of all the ideas that I had in my bag. And one of the things that was in my non-negotiables was I needed to do something that was a reflection of me, something that I really believed in. And freedom has always been the number one priority in my life. That's why we nomaded for three years. That's why I've always had a remote team before it was cool. My first company already was a remote team. We've always extended this freedom to the rest of our teams. And eWebinar was really the only idea that did exactly that. Like we're not really selling webinars, right? We automate webinars, but we're, we're really giving people back their time to live their lives, to do anything else that they want, to spend more time with friends and family, to party more, to travel more. So I felt really connected with that. But also I think it was just the idea that resonated with me the most, given how much time I had researched into whether this something like this existed. And I remember asking myself, because I almost had like PTSD from, from these two startups, right? I just, I was so scared to start something else. And I knew whatever else I put my time into was going to be another five years. Success is not so easily replicable. There's a process that you need to take, right? From even naming the company to branding, to specking, to getting out of the market, building, you know? So I guess I was just scared to pick something, but I asked myself, how would I feel if someone else did this tomorrow? Exactly the way I envisioned how would I feel? And I immediately felt, I guess, fear that like, I I would just hate that if I had thought about it for so many years and someone else did it the way I wanted it to. And then it would just make it harder because there were already other products out there, just not in this form. And the next day I incorporated the company and then just got going with it. So as a founder, I think you want to be creative. You want to take a lot of risks, but as you start digging into every idea, that you have, you start to realize how hard things are. Before you hit Google or look at previous businesses that may have tried and failed, or maybe even businesses that are that are successful, it all seems like a dream is very easy. But like once you start researching it, you start thinking, oh, actually, I'm not the best person to run it because this person has 10 years of experience doing this other thing. So not only does it have to be an idea that you really resonate with, it also has to be something that you have the expertise in. And at that time, like I probably, yeah, I would say that I probably at that point run over a thousand webinars in 10 years and I'm counting like demos and stuff. So I really knew this process. I knew the products. I knew the shortcomings. I knew the value that a person like me could get from not doing them and the value someone could get by scaling something that really works. So I think there's just so few ideas that you're like willing to die on the hill for. And this was one of those things that through, I guess, a process of elimination, I had kind of slowly convinced myself. So it took about like two months for me to get there. And then we've been doing it ever since. Yeah. I mean, that's really interesting. I didn't really fully understand. I guess you talked to me about this before that the process was, yes, you had ideas, but the primary part of the process. So the thing that drove the process was that list of non-negotiables that that immediately cut out almost all of the ideas. Plus, you know, at least when you talked to me about it, you had lived so intimately with the problem that I knew you understood the problem. The way you would talk about it, I knew 
you understood the problem. And I understood the problem too, because I had trained agents for years as well and was giving the, not a webinar, this was live training. Some of it was virtual, but giving the same training over and over and over again, having people sign up, not show up. It's exhausting. It can be demoralizing. You're answering the same questions over and over again. So yeah, I recognized that immediately that you understood the problem. I mean, there were other things too that I was just so scared to start something that I just needed to be convinced. Um, not just like by myself, but I had talked to so many other people, like other founders to validate the idea. But also I have this one friend, Victor, Victor Tam. He's a founder of this company. It's a luggage company called Monos. And he's a consumer guy. So he sells products. And I'd known him for, you know, he's married to my best friend in Vancouver and I trust him a lot. And I remember being at his house and talking through some different ideas and not knowing what I wanted to do. He was the first person that pointed this out to me. And he said, the reason why Spacio was so hard for you is because you were the first to market. And it was like a light bulb moment. I had been in this business for so long and I never thought that that was the reason why it was so limited. Right? And I also wrote about this on LinkedIn is like blue ocean, a blue ocean opportunity, right? Creating something in a space where nothing existed before takes a lot of time to open up a new market, convincing people, educating them. And he taught me from his own businesses and he started breaking his own businesses down for me that it's best to be the second mover because the first mover has done all the research. You can look at all their SEO, all their content, how people react to their products. You can buy their products. You can test it. You can figure out where you can be better. And so that conversation, I think, really helped tip the scale for me as well. Because like I mentioned, like there were other products that were out there and people were using them. They just weren't as good as what I had hoped to use in my business. So I actually remember going to competitor LinkedIn and, and websites to see how big their team was, if I could find out what their revenue was. And I think a few of these companies, like these evergreen webinar companies that I saw, like they didn't have a team on LinkedIn. So it means that they have a remote team. So it tells me that they have revenue, it's a validated business model, and they're able to do it on the cheap the way I want to because I'm bootstrapped. And I have no idea if they raise money or not. Maybe not like big money, like companies like Zoom or that actually do live broadcasts is another category. We don't really compete with them but I'm specifically referring to webinar automation. So I saw that these companies were actually doing pretty well and I was kind of doing the math like, okay, if they have 5,000 customers times their subscription, how much they're making and they have like two people on LinkedIn, that means everyone else is remote. So just kind of through that process of researching other companies as well, like it, it made me feel like I could build the lightweight company that I envisioned because I wanted to fully bootstrap. Yeah, that's interesting. And it's obvious too that these companies hadn't really evolved in a long time. So they had a stable product that wasn't evolving, which also, to me at least, sort of signaled that their burn rate was set and probably pretty low because of that. I want to hear at least one other idea that you had. <laughs> like, did you have a blue ocean? Because I literally have no idea what else you're thinking about. Is there any worth mentioning? I mean, there were so many, right? Like, and I want to caveat with this, like, I did not go very deep into actually executing. I'm like just spitballing ideas off the top of my head, but there was one called Rethenticate and I actually have the domain Rethenticate. And it was about like validating, like somehow authenticating a luxury product that you have by like putting the certificate or a picture or whatever on the blockchain so that when you could resell it or whatnot, like it could be, it could have all the certificates that, that come with it. I forgot what I was trying to sell myself at the time. 
But it was like somewhere along that. And actually- You're trying to make sure people knew it was real. Yeah. Like my first ever idea, which I still think should exist, and maybe something like this should ex- like already exist, was called GiveBoard. And I have the domain. That's the one that I actually keep, I keep renewing. You know how hard it is to find like a .com that has two words that are like not misspelled? It was like a public registry, like a gifting platform, but it was like your personal registry that you would just have, like you could pin things to it or like, you know, it would link to your, you know, Amazon wishlist or whatever. And it would just be where people go to like get gifts for you. Cause it's so hard to buy gifts for your friends or whatnot. And you could use it to like, you know, raise money for your tuition or, or whatever, but it was like a gifting platform, but more like public. Right. Right. So you could look up anybody and see what you want to get them for their birthday or whatever. Yeah. Never did that. Well, you know, it's never too late. I don't think I'm ever going to do a consumer product. Can you imagine (laughs) how hard that would be? Oh my God. Starting from scratch. Yeah. So I guess my question is, is once you figured out that eWebinar was the thing, what did you do? Like, what was the next step? So also funny story related, Victor, the luggage guy. I mean, he was the person that came up with the name eWebinar. Oh, really? Oh, I didn't know that. And negotiated the domain for me without me asking him. Oh, I think I remember that. Yeah. And he's so good with names. He wouldn't call something purple. It was like electric violet. Like that's just what he does, right? He's just really good at that stuff. And I remember after our conversation, I was like, okay, well, I think I'm going to do this. If you have a good name, like you're so good at names, can you help me with, with coming up with something? And he was just like, yeah, okay, let me give it a think. Two mornings later, it was like Saturday. I was like in Vancouver at the time. I get this text from him. He's like, hey, buy this now. You have to trust me. I already negotiated with the owner. They want to sell it for X, but they're willing to do it for like 2000 And at the time, like 2000 for a domain is so expensive. Yeah, right. But I trust him. And it was like eWebinar.com. And then he's like, you know, it's like mail to email, like webinar to eWebinar. You are the automated webinar. And I'm like, that sounds good. But then that name kind of grew on me within the next 24 hours. And I'm like, man, this is like a really, really good name. And I remember going to a conference in Toronto, like a tech conference and meeting one of these like domain traders like brokers. And he said that domain is worth like 50K. He was like, if you got it for anything less than 50K, like you got a steal. (laughs) I mean, I remember when you first told me, I was like, that is a slam dunk because it's immediately also a noun. Like it's an Annie webinar. You know, it's like. I had the worst names. I had like webinar tree or like 99 webinars. Like I had just like a list of names that were all so bad. But you know, what I did was I actually called you. You know, I don't remember why I did, but I did because we hadn't really stayed in touch. No, 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 we hadn't. Yeah, like you were my customer and LinkedIn wasn't really a thing. So I forgot how we were even staying in contact, but maybe I had remembered you saying you were working with some other startups. I, I mean, when I was going to New York, which I was still frequently going to, I might have reached out to you once in a while to go for lunch, but it wasn't like an, a regular contact. But yeah, I remember calling you thinking that maybe you could help me with something because I, I basically just incorporated this and I realized, okay, I need a website. I need a development partner because I didn't want to start this company with my previous co-founder. I just felt like we had a good run and I guess our story in each other's lives is over at that point and we should go and do separate things and we decided on that together. So just didn't really have anyone help me on my side. And I remember we went for lunch and I told you about this idea, but I'm curious, I guess, to hear from you. What was your first thought? Like, I don't even remember if you were doing anything at that point, but what was your first reaction when I told you about this idea? Well, I mean, first of all, it wasn't like I was surprised that you called me, but like you said, we weren't 
hanging out regularly or anything like that. But first of all, I was super flattered and excited that you called me to talk about an idea to begin with. The timing was impeccable, which did feel a little bit like divine intervention for me at the time, only because I needed some cash. We talked about how I would help work because I was under that non-compete and I had to wait six months before I could start this new corporate job. Right. So that was already in my head before we met. I was like, any opportunity to work. I love Melissa. I think it's probably a great fit. So I went to go meet you for lunch with no intention of working long term on this idea. Right. This was going to be my bridge to get me to my next corporate job. So when you first told me the idea, it's actually what I realize now is something super common with our customers. There's like a mental leap you need to make before you understand how good of an idea it is. And so I did experience that. I was trying to remember exactly how I felt or, but it was like, why is this better than a video? Isn't a live webinar just better? Like some these are the same questions that our customers have if they haven't made that sort of mental leap yet. But you had such a clear vision for what it would be, even in terms of its like differentiating feature set. And you were able to sort of describe it to me in a way that I was able to make that leap. And then as I sat with the idea, I started to think like, why doesn't this exist? Like it was so clear and such a good idea that it felt like it was hiding in plain sight. You know what I mean? But that's why I was Googling every quarter. I just couldn't believe that this didn't exist. Like, how can it not? Like, I was convinced that I wasn't doing a good job Googling. So I just kept digging and digging and digging. And sometimes it just doesn't exist. Yeah, no. And it's funny. It's like, I I know that people have this problem that we solve, but I think you were the only one persistent enough to keep Googling it. Because most people go Google it once. If they can't find anything, they stop and they give up or they look at the existing products and they're just not their primary function is to make people believe a webinar is live when it isn't, which is at least any sort of like major company is not going to want to do that. I mean, my pain that I was feeling was so strong because I was a one-man show, at least in sales and customer success. And I tried to solve it with just like, here's a video, but nobody wants to watch that because they can't communicate. So I did use one of those other solutions that were available at the time, but it just never fulfilled the entire purpose and deliver the experience I wanted, right? I wanted the chat to be num- like, number one, I wanted the chat. I want to be able to hop in and respond live from my phone anywhere in the world while I'm at dinner or while I'm at breakfast, right? Like I, I, wanted, I didn't want a fake chat box that went to an email that didn't allow me to communicate with the person right then and there. And I wanted to have interactivity and pop-ups and collect information from them and deliver links and, and those things. So I guess you think it exists, but I remember I didn't go to you with a purpose of like asking you to help. I just reached out and said, let me share this idea with you. I cannot remember why, but I remember you told me your history, like very similar to your introduction. And I didn't know that you had studied in writing plays and like you wanted to, yeah, you produce shows. And then I remember saying, are you good at content? Can you write content? Because what I need is a website. Anyone who's written a website before whether you start from scratch or you're trying to update your website, which I guess we're doing now, knows how difficult it is. It is so hard. It is like the shortest letter that you can write. Right? Imagine writing a short letter. It's the shortest letter that you can write. And I would have done it, but I'm not great at it, but I would have done it because I, I wrote all my previous websites. And then you were like, oh, I'm actually also very good at market research. And then we're like, oh, okay, let's start there. But I remember 
the reservations that you had were because you had been with a couple other startups and it didn't work out and your partner was, I don't know if against is the right word, but against you going into another startup. So can you share more about those other experiences and how you felt personally? Hey, I'd like to take a second here to talk about my own company, eWebinar, and our mission to rescue people from what I call webinar hell to give them back their time and save them literally hundreds of hours every month through webinar automation. If your sales team is tired of doing the same demo over and over for unqualified leads or worse, prospects who don't even show up, an on-demand demo powered by eWebinar can help them get their time back so they can close more deals. If you're doing customer onboarding and training on repeat, eWebinar can help you automate those so you never have to do them live again. Customer success teams are using eWebinar to run hundreds of sessions every single month without a live host. Why don't you give our product a try and see for yourself? Visit eWebinar.com to join our own on-demand demo or to sign up for a free trial. All right, now that I've gotten that on my system, let's get back to the episode. Well, first of all, just going back to what you were saying before about when you were asking me these questions about, can you do this? Can you do that? Because also, you know, I was a product manager too. So I also knew a lot about how to spec out a product, right? And I knew a lot about how to spec out a product that was like a migration of an existing piece of software, but how to make it better, right? Like some people are special, you know, their specialty is like building a product from scratch. I had really developed an expertise in how to like match a feature set kind of, but make it better, like make it 10 times better. But I had always gravitated towards jobs where I had my fingers in kind of every pie. You know, I directed and produced a show off Broadway. You do everything. You do marketing, you do the books, you know, you're paying people. You are writing all of the copy to advertise it. You do everything. You're managing a physical space. You're managing relationships with actors and with your stage manager. And so even when I was at Corcoran, the thing I loved about being at Corcoran was that it was a small enough development team that I had freedom to come up with an idea and pitch it. And if it was agreed upon, I could go and execute it with very little red tape standing in my way. So I've always been drawn to jobs where I'm not an entrepreneur. I don't have no illusions about that. Like, I don't want to be the person in charge. <laughs> like That's just not my thing. But I'm very entrepreneurial or entrepreneur-ish, however you want to say it. Like, I, I love having the ability to figure out an idea, a solution, and then go execute on it. And so I think that's why I had developed a pretty broad skill set. I thought that was kind of normal. But, you know, sort of in today's corporate world, people are very, very specialized and I'm much more of a generalist. And so part of what attracted me to this idea is that that would be the case. There were a lot of things to do. It was a startup like this was day one. It was everything. It was spec the product, do the research, figure out the marketing copy. What's the branding going to be? And so that kind of idea really turns me on. Like that's very exciting to me to have kind of a bird's eye view of the whole thing on a personal level. I'd been at these two startups and I was kind of beat down. Honestly, I was sort of called myself. I, I would tell my friends I have whip dog syndrome because I just felt so shut down. It was actually like, I told my friends, I was like, nobody tells you that a midlife crisis is actually a crisis. <laughs> like, it's like, it's an actual crisis. You know, I had a lot of identity wrapped up in work, maybe too much. I realized, but it was rough. And so we'd spend a lot of our savings, right? Because I had taken massive pay cuts to go to these jobs. And so when you called and I agreed to start working with you, my boyfriend, Jeff, 
was like, he was worried about the money side of things, obviously, because he also has a small company that he runs himself, right? So, but he was also worried about me going back into the lion's den, right? To go into it to something, if something had kind of failed again, he just knew that I was kind of at a low point. But what I will say is that, I mean, I really do. I mean, I don't want to get like too woo-woo about this, but like, I feel very lucky that things worked out the way that they did, that the opportunity dropped itself in my lap at the exact right moment when I was between things, because I did have the presence of mind from these bad experiences that this was a good opportunity. I didn't know if it was going to work, right? You never know, but I did know that it was good. And I think the biggest lesson I got from those two startups is that A, a CEO needs to really understand and get behind their idea. You just need to know that they fully understand what the idea is. And they also need to have the ability to envision how to get it to revenue, how to sell it. Because I had one CEO who had a great idea, but no clue how to monetize this idea or how to sell it, right? And so we built this product that then didn't do anything. And then the second startup was the idea kept shifting. Every time someone would talk to the CEO about something else, it just shifted and shifted and shifted. And there was nothing grounded about the idea, let alone an idea about how to get people to pay for it. So when you talked to me, I saw the, first of all, you had a track record. You'd sold a company and I heard you had talked, you know, you talked about, for example, how you had rewarded longtime employees of Spacio, even though they had no equity in the company when you sold. And I was like, wow, because that was the opposite of my experience with these other CEOs. So there was integrity, there was generosity, there was clarity of the idea and the ability to sell things. Those were all things where I was like, okay, the person is right, right? And then the idea, like I said, especially as I started doing competitive research, so the person was right. And then as I started to do competitive research, then I was like, oh, this idea is a slam dunk. Like, this is a very good idea. And like I said, I couldn't imagine. I started to wonder why it didn't exist already, right? So. Yeah. So you kind of convinced yourself through that research. Yeah. And, and I had been a trainer. So I'd lived the problem too. And I was like, oh my God, this would have been incredible to have this tool. It would have made my life so much better. So then there's the third component, which is the personal, right? I have this boyfriend who's super worried about me staying knocked down. There's money issues at stake. And I've had like three, I I wouldn't call myself an ambitious person in a traditional sense. Like I'm like, I'm going to do that and I'm going to go succeed at that. But what has happened is I've had the presence of mind, like maybe three, four times in my life to recognize that a door has opened that I want to go through. And I feel really strongly compelled to go through it. And that happened this time. But the thing that was different is that I was older. I was in my fifties and I was like, are you kidding, Todd? You're going to make this big of a change now? And so it was the first time I'd had that experience where kind of this fear came in. And I had to talk to a lot of people about it. And ultimately, I'm grateful that I have some sort of mechanisms to short circuit that fear and see that I really did want to do these things. But I had to get really clear with myself and I knew it was a risk. You know, and I would tell Jeff, like, look, I'll give it a year. And if I'm not convinced, then I'll go get a job in real estate tech again which I knew I could fall back on. But that conversation at home and with your friends, you know, you're trying to get support from your friends. What were those conversations like? Well, with my closest friends, at the end of the day, people knew that I wanted to do this. That's what everyone kept saying. They're like, Todd, you you want to do this. You're just afraid of doing it. So what's the worst that could happen? 
do you feel like in a year from now, if it's not working out, you could get a job again? And the truth is, I really knew I could. I have a very niche expertise in real estate data in New York City. So I knew I could get a job, you know, like if five years had gone by, probably not, but after a year. So that put Jeff at ease, that put me at ease. And then after a year, it was clear that this was a thing. Yeah. But you didn't actually work for us full time. So I think that's that's also important to bring up is because I knew your situation, you lived in New York and you still do. Every US person needs insurance, either you know, you cover privately or through your company. And we were bootstrap, which means I wrote the first check into the company. And you know, we have some friends and family funding as well, but not enough to pay a New York executive salary, which I knew was what you would get. And you were at the point in your life where you needed to rebuild your financial assets and your bank account and having taken massive pay cuts, you couldn't do that anymore. Like you literally couldn't do that anymore, even if you wanted to. And I remember that. And so what we did was we actually spec'd out project by project, how much your consulting fee with us would be. So it would be like website, this many pages, this much, right? So I knew that we could cover that amount and you had to continue working for a much larger company as a contractor with them because they could pay you what you needed to live. Yeah. But also, if you remember, like I was going to go on full time at Compass, right? That was the job that I got, right? I was under this non-compete. It was going to expire. So there was this six-month period where I was working with you. And I, I think probably three, four months in, I was like, I really want to do this. Yeah. But you did work on this evenings and weekends and whenever you could and you also told me when you couldn't put time into it. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Because I was also trying to piece together income from other sources, like through consulting stuff, right? So as I got closer to this time period where I was supposed to start full time, where I would have to give up eWebinar completely, I went to Compass and to their credit, I said, I would like to work for you four days a week. And I would like to work for eWebinar one day a week. And they said, okay. And that was surprising to me and amazing. And a year later, they were like, Especially when, uh, what happened? I mean, the, it wasn't COVID, but there was this sort of economic downturn. And they, they were like, Todd, if we want to keep you, we have to bring you on full-time. And so then I did go full-time for almost a year and didn't work on eWebinar basically at all. A little bit here and there. And then you called me and you said, I promised you I would never tell you to come over until I felt like it was time and it was ready. And you said, you can come over now. I have the confidence that you can come over. And I was like, okay, I'll do it. And I gave my notice. Yeah. And because I knew what had happened and the financial situation, I didn't expect you to not take bigger financial opportunities because I can't take that away from you. I didn't even want to put that in your mind to distract you from that. But I did say, like, I would never ask you to quit your job and do this full time unless I knew this was a good opportunity. And it was probably like just under two years running eWebinar and we're on year four now, you know, it took a year and a half to get the product out to market, but it was basically from incorporation date, like almost two years before I called you and said, I think this is time. And it was really hard for me too. I had to talk to my friends and I had told them your situation and I wasn't sure if we could afford you and I wasn't sure what your income expectation was, but you lived in New York and I didn't want to ask you to take such a huge pay cut given you know conversations that you already had at home before me. But I also wasn't really in a position to pay you exactly what this other big company was paying you plus insurance. Like it was just not possible. 
But I also wasn't able to grow the business myself with the development team because I was the only person doing everything non-development related. And I think we were probably at 20,000 MRR by the time I made that call. And I remember, I don't know if that took you by surprise, but I think you were like, okay, let me really think about this. And I did ask you to think about what your number would be for you to not be completely broke and not damage your relationships at home, but also be able to to do this full time. I had been able to make up some pretty good ground in that. I guess it was like a year. You know, I was able to sort of take away the immediate danger of being like literally running out of cash to live, right? So the immediate kind of danger was gone, but it wasn't like I could take a massive pay cut. So the thing that's so funny is I wonder what I sounded like on the other end of the line. But in my head, I was like, I mean, I, I knew what the number was pretty quick. I knew I needed to like look at my expenses and all that. And I did. But I knew what the number was pretty quick of what I needed to sign kind of like make sure that at least I was building back savings a little bit above covering expenses. But you were so earnest in trying to convince me in my head. I was like, I'm coming, Melissa. <laughs> Like, you know, like I'm sold. I think I wasn't even trying to make you sweat, but I knew really quickly because e-webinar was on my mind all the time. I mean, I remember you saying, though, that you're in your 50s. Yeah. And that you were going to take the sleep and that you trust me. Yep. But I needed to know that it was going to be very hard for you to, if this didn't work out, just to hop back into another opportunity. So you needed to really think hard about like, okay, do I stay with this company where my niche is and that I've, that I've spent 20 years or do I take a break in my resume and do this thing that may or may not work out? So at that point, was there any reservation that this was not going to be a real opportunity and like what was going through your head then? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. I mean, there was still fear, right? I just really wanted to do it. And there was fear. I remember that conversation where, because I, I hadn't told Compass yet, right? And so I didn't know how they were going to react. And I didn't know if I was going to be burning a bridge, right? And so I was nervous about that. And I was also nervous about bringing this up with Jeff and saying like, yes, we've made up for some lost ground or whatever, but I'm going to be taking a pretty hefty cut here and we're not going to have our insurance, right? We're going to pay, you know, because even politics aside, but it was really eye-opening when we had to get insurance through ourselves. And even if we wanted to pay a bazillion dollars, we couldn't get high quality insurance. So there was even that, like I'm 50, I'm starting to have to go to the doctor a little bit more. So these were all things on my mind, but I really wanted to do it. When I went and gave my notice to Compass, they tried to retain me and I didn't expect that. I mean, maybe that was naive, but I didn't expect that. And they came back with a really aggressive number to get me to stay. And it wasn't hard to say no, because at the end of the day, I should probably be more money motivated than I am. But I, I am most motivated about doing something that excites me, where I feel creative, where I feel like my voice is heard, where I feel like I contribute. You know, all those things really matter to me. But that put my mind at ease because they told me, they said, look, in a year, if it doesn't work out, you have a job. And so that did take some of the fear away. And I haven't even told you this, but they call every once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> you should sell them a webinar. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I won't work for you, but you know, you can buy my product. I have one last question for you. And the reason why I'm digging into this is because I want our listeners to get an idea of what it takes to get an experienced executive that spent 
20, 30 years in their domain to pick you, to pick not just you as a founder, but your idea. And so for, for people that are listening, what kind of advice, I guess, do you have for them on how you recruit the most capable person while especially bootstrapped and limited resources? Well, I mean, I've talked about this some, but first of all, one of the things that was a big decider for me is watching your track record, which was not only that you had sold a company, but that more importantly, honestly, that you'd acted with complete integrity and in fact had gone above and beyond to take care of those people who were taking a risk with you to start a company. So there was like this very obvious thing, like your track record in terms of how you treat people and in terms of your ability to sell and your integrity were huge reasons why I was willing to take a chance. Yes, the idea was important. It was really good that I had had experience directly with the problem so that I could kind of get it completely. And I really do believe so wholeheartedly in the idea. So that was part of it. I think at the end of the day, the thing that motivates me the most is freedom, creativity. Like you don't micromanage me. We talk about what we need done and I go, I'm able to make decisions on my own. We trust and respect each other. We don't agree, which I remember the first time I realized that collaboration did not mean agreement all the time, right? You have to come to consensus. You have to make a decision. We can vigorously disagree with each other and there's no hurt feelings, right? So all of those things were exciting to me. And I really believed in the idea. So I am not, at the end of the day, money motivated. And I know that that's probably a little bit of a luxury. But yeah, I need something that excites me and where I feel like I can be of use and that I I really am passionate about. Yeah. And I think like for people listening, when you want someone to join your company and choose you and the idea and take this risk with you, it's not an all or nothing journey, right? We started on by project and then very, very part-time as needed. David as well, who is now my, you know, my co-founder, CTO, and conveniently my life partner at the same time. But this whole idea that, oh, you have to start something and you have to build a team right away, like you don't have to do that. Like you can ease into those relationships. It just takes so much for someone to be passionate about what you're passionate about. So getting them to quit everything and join you before you even know, before they even know if they're passionate about it. Just doesn't make sense for both people. You had mentioned that you became more convinced after doing marketing analysis. And you probably, over the course of almost two years working part-time on certain projects, further convinced yourself as you saw the product come to fruition and people use it and say things about it. But that process is a progression. Even my first startup, like my co-founder was my contractor for a year and a half before we decided that Hey, like, are we in this together? Yeah, it was definitely a process, right? It was a process of coming to a deeper understanding of the idea, of understanding that it was a viable idea in the marketplace. Like, all of those things took time. And it was glad that I was given that opportunity to work for eWebinar without having to fully commit at first. That was a big deal. Also, money's a real thing, right? And that's the number one thing I think you have to take care of with your team. And it's also one question that I ask everybody that I interview is like, what is your ideal dream income that you would consider to be high, right? Aligned with what you're able to contribute, but what is that ideal dream income? And, and so, because I want to know, can we meet those expectations? Should you work out? And I think a lot of people think, well, if I give people or a person a chunk of equity, 
then they're going to come join me. They're going to quit their job. But 40% of $0 is $0. And now you have less equity with someone that may or may not be committed. So I, I really don't believe in that. And I remember telling you that there will be opportunities for options down the road, but we have to know that you are someone we can't live without. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. It's like when it actually came time to come on board fully and, you know, we were talking about options, the thing that was actually most meaningful to me about that is that I had ownership in the company of the idea. Like it, I wanted skin in the game because I believed in it so much. Like, yeah, we had revenue, right? We were moving forward, but there was no guarantee that those options were going to turn into something, you know, massive yet. But it made me really even more committed knowing that I was actually part of the company. But you were also one of the first people who wrote us a check. Right. Which was so scary at the time. I mean, you are a friends and family investor. I think you had like just maybe sold your property or something like that. Yeah, I just sold my apartment and moved in with Jeff. So I had the money, but like it was scary. <laughs> like in the big picture, it's not that much money. But for me at the time, I was like, oof, what am I doing? I mean, it wasn't insignificant. No. I mean, we had a minimum and we didn't, you know, we didn't want all these small checks, right? Like we just wanted a meaningful amount of funding that we could hire a dev shop and do these projects with you and hire designers, which all cost money. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm sure we can talk forever about this, but we should save some juicy details, I think, for upcoming episodes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess just we should summarize what we talked about, right, a little bit. So, I guess we talked about the process of choosing an idea of how you know it's the one. How do you narrow down the idea to the one you're going to follow? And then how do you attract someone to join you on the journey who has experience and is actually bringing something to the table, right? So, I think that's sort of a good summary of what we talked about today. So, we wanted to end these episodes on a hot take. So I want to know what your hot take is. What, after everything we've talked about today, what's your hot take for listeners? Yeah. So on the topic of choosing the one idea you want to work on, I think my hot take is a lot of people, I think, choose ideas with their head mm -hmm. and they should be choosing with their heart. Mm -hmm. And maybe it sounds woo-woo, but it really isn't, right? And like when I talk about my non-negotiables and really understanding what makes me happy, when you build a career on top of your happiness, even when it's hard, and it will surely be hard, you know that you are doing the work to serve your happiness, not an idea that you think will make money. There are so many ideas that will make money. So I think more people should ask themselves, like just sit with themselves and, and really think, okay, what are the things making me happy? What are the things that frustrate me? And what is the business that fits that criteria. And by doing that, they're really leading with their life and choosing happiness over revenue, which ironically, I think in the long run, you make more revenue because you are happier in what you do. So I guess for, for this particular topic, that's my hot take. What is yours for, I guess, from your perspective, choosing a startup to, to work on? Well, you know, like I said, I had these moments in my life, just to give you one example, like I wanted to work in the theater, like that's what I wanted to do. And there came this fork in the road where I was offered a full-time, and I love working with students in that world. And I got a full-time job offer at Stella Adler Studios being their third year acting teacher around the same time I was training at General Assembly to be a product manager. 
And I could not believe that after evaluating those two pathways, I chose to go after software. It was like a right turn. It was like really, and nobody questioned it, but it was a big shift. And this decision to go with the webinar, it felt like that. Like it felt like that kind of deep in my gut when I really evaluated all parts of it. But I was afraid, right? Uh, and that had a lot to do with my age, honestly, which I'd never experienced before, right? I'd never had that, like, you know, retirement's not that far away. Like, what's your plan? I mean, I think my hot take is that I was really grateful that I was able to short circuit that fear and see deeper beyond it. And also trust myself that if it didn't work out, I would figure out a way to get back on a different path. And I did give myself a time frame, right? But the hot take is kind of if you want it and you're afraid, maybe do it anyway. <laughs> I think one of the best advice I got from a mentor way back when, when I was really struggling with Spacio and just trying to get people to take meetings with me even and trying to close deals. I think we were like under 10 customers at the time. And one of my mentors was like, you are your own safety net. Because there's a lot of fear when you're like, am I even made for this? Like, if I was made for this, why are other people successful and I'm not? And if this is a good product, then why aren't people buying it? Like, I don't understand. I never lived through a successful product at that point in my life. And I remember hearing that just gave me the confidence to keep going because I knew I could always change my own fate. Yeah. And that was the same for me. That was like a deep sense that things would work out and that I would be able to deal with the circumstances that came up if I needed to make a change. And so happily, they haven't, that hasn't happened yet. I don't think it will. Yeah, hopefully it won't. Yeah, hopefully it won't. <laughs> well, I think it's time to wrap up our first ever recording. I felt pretty good about the conversation. What about you? Yeah, good, good, good. I, you know, I was nervous, you know that. This is my <laughs> first podcast ever. I'm always nervous. I've done 100 and I'm still nervous going in. Yeah, so yeah, it was good. Yeah. And if there are particular topics you want us to get into this season, please let us know by connecting with me on LinkedIn. If you have any feedback about this podcast, I'd love to hear from you. Find me on LinkedIn. My name is Melissa Kwan, last name spelled K-W-A-N. And if what we've talked about today resonates with you, subscribe to Profit Led on your favorite podcast app to get notified of new episodes and join our mailing list by going to profitled.fm. I promise to only share things you'll actually care about. Thanks for listening to this episode. Bye now. Bye, y'all. Thanks for listening to Profit Led. If you enjoyed this episode, we hope you will subscribe to the Profit Led podcast and head over to our website, profitled.fm, to see the show notes of every episode. You can also join our mailing list to be notified of new episodes or when we have interesting products and resources to share. We promise to only share things you'll actually care about. Thanks again for listening. Bye now.